Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Brown here. Glad you could join us. So, just to let you know, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Right, let's get right into it now. Let's start off with, uh, fortunately, an obituary from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, March 26, 2023. Suzanne Reinstein, April 1st, 1945 to March 20th, 2023. Author unknown. Interior designer Suzanne Stamps Reinstein died on March 20th, 2023 after a long battle with cancer. Her timing, as always, was impeccable. Her third volume of Interiors, A Welcoming Elegance, was published on March 14th by Rizzoli. And what a fitting title for, uh, for Suzanne was Nothing If Not Welcoming. A true booster of her adopted city, Los Angeles, Suzanne devoted her life to welcoming fellow Angelinos into her passion for interiors, arts, and culture through her work as a designer, entrepreneur, preservationist, and philanthropist. Born in New Orleans on April 1, 1945, Suzanne attended the Newman School, which she always credited with shaping both her creativity and intellect. She matriculated to Tulane University, where she was the managing editor of the newspaper and earned a bachelor's degree in English literature. After stints working as a researcher for author Hodding Carter and a self-described Girl Friday for Eric Severide at CBS News, Suzanne continued her career in Washington, D.C. as a freelance nonfiction television producer for a wide range of subjects from serious documentaries to celebrity cooking shows. It was while working as a producer that she met the love of her life, Frederick Reinstein. Fred, an accomplished news producer and post-production pioneer, convinced her to move to Los Angeles and eventually marry him. Their daughter, Kate, was born in 1980. In 1988, Susanna opened her iconic shop, Hollyhock, in Larchmont Village. Hollyhock has had three homes over the course of 30 years in business, ultimately ending up in the La Cienega Designer Quarter. Uh, more than a shop, Hollyhock served as both the destination for the local design community and as an incubator for emerging artists and craftsmen. The shop enabled Suzanne to begin designing interiors, the profession for which she is most known. Her signature-style Southern elegance married to Southern California clearly struck a note. Suzanne's work was featured in all the nation's leading uh, lifestyle magazines, and she was named Architectural Digest AD100 and L Decor's A-List. Suzanne is the recipient of the New York School of Interior Design's Albert Hadley Award for Lifetime Achievement, the Institute of Classical Architecture, and, Ar and Arts, the Arthur Ross Award for Interior Design, the Southern California Institute of Classical Architecture and Arts Legacy Award, the LCDQ Living Legends Award, and the LACMA Design Leadership Award. She will be honored with the Kipps Bay Boys, Girls and, uh, Boys and Girls Club Lifetime Achievement Award on April 3, 2023. Despite these numerous industry accolades, one of her proudest, proudest moments was receiving the Newman School Distinguished Alumni Award in 2020. Suzanne's love of historic architecture and preservation led, her to, led to her involvement in Los, An Los Angeles Conservancy, the largest membership-based local historic preservation society and active member since the 1980s, Suzanne served two terms as a board member. 
a lifelong avid gardener and enthusiast of historical gardens, Suzanne joined the Garden Conservancy, a national organization devoted to preserving and sharing America's gardens and diverse gardening traditions for the public and served on its board since 2004. In 2018, Suzanne conceived and started the Suzanne and Frederick Reinstein Fund for Garden Documentation to document gardens through the Garden Conservancy, both to preserve gardens through imagery and to create access to these gardens to a wider audience. Suzanne will be remembered for her style and graciousness, her boundless positivity, innumerable acts of kindness, her generosity of spirit, her steadfast friendships, and of course, the fabulous parties she threw. Suzanne is survived by her daughter, Kate Brodsky, and son-in-law, Alexander Brodsky, daughters, uh, granddaughters, Beatrice, Federica, and Delphine, her brother, Odom Stamps, and her stepchildren, Linda Reinstein and David Reinstein. She was predeceased by her husband, Frederick Reinstein, in 2013. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made to the Garden Conservancy. That was Susanna Reinstein, April 1, 1945 to March 20, 2023. Author unknown from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, March 26, 2023. On to some stories from Israel from the world section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, March 27, 2023. Tens of thousands protest across Israel. People express anger after Netanyahu fires his defense minister for urging a halt to the judicial overhaul by Elon Ben Zion. Jerusalem. Tens of thousands of Israelis poured into the streets of cities across the country Sunday night in a spontaneous outburst of anger after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu abruptly fired his defense minister for challenging the Israeli leader's judicial overhaul plan. Protesters in Tel Aviv blocked a main highway and lighted a large bonfire, while police scuffled with protesters who gathered outside Netanyahu's private home in Jerusalem. The unrest deepened a months-long crisis over Netanyahu's plan to overhaul the judiciary, which has sparked mass protests among business leaders and former security chiefs and drawn concern from the United States and other close allies. Netanyahu's dismissal of Defense Minister Yoav Gallant signaled that the Prime Minister and his allies were barrel ahead this week with the overhaul plan. Gallant had been the first senior member of the ruling Likud party to speak out against it, saying that deep divisions were threatening to weaken the military. But as droves of protesters fled to the streets late into the night, Likud ministers began indicating willingness to hit the brakes. Culture Minister Miki Zohar, a Netanyahu confidant, said the party would support him if he decided to pause the judicial overhaul. Israeli media said leaders in Netanyahu's coalition were to meet <clears throat> Monday morning. Later in the day, the grassroots protest movement said it would hold another mass demonstration outside the Knesset or parliament in Jerusalem. In a brief statement, Netanyahu's office said late Sunday that the prime minister had dismissed Gelant. Netanyahu later tweeted, we must all stand strong against refusal. Israelis flowed into the streets at, in protest after Netanyahu's announcement, blocking Tel Aviv's main artery, transforming the Ayalon Highway into a sea of blue and white Israeli flags and lighting a large bonfire, bonfire in the middle of the road. Demonstrations took place in Beersheba, Haifa, and Jerusalem, where thousands of people gathered outside Netanyahu's private residence. Police scuffled with protesters and sprayed the crowd with a water cannon, 
Thousands then marched from the residence to the Knesset. Inan Azik, 27, said he came up to demonstrate outside Netanyahu's private residence in central Jerusalem because bad things are happening in this country, referring to, to the judicial overhaul as a quick legislative blitz. Netanyahu's decision came less than a day after Gallant, a former senior general, called for a pause in the controversial legislation until after next month's Independence Day holidays, citing the turmoil in the ranks of the military. Gallant had voiced concerns that the divisions in society were hurting morale in the military and emboldening Israel's enemies. I see how the source of our strength is being eroded, Gallant said. Although several other Likud members had indicated they might follow Gallant, the party quickly closed ranks Sunday, clearing the way for his dismissal. Gilead Distel Atbarium, Netanyahu's public diplomacy minister, said Netanyahu summoned Gallant to his office and told him that he doesn't have any faith in him anymore and therefore he is fired. Gallant tweeted shortly after the announcement that the security of the state of Israel will always and always and will always remain my life mission. Our opposition leader Yair Lapid said, Gallant's dismissal harms national security and ignores warnings of all defense officials. Israel's consul general in New York City, Asap Zamur, resigned in protests. Avig Dichter, a former chief of the Shin Bet Security Agency, is expected to replace him. Dichter had reportedly flirted with joining Gallant, but instead announced Sunday that he was backing the prime minister. Netanyahu's government is pushing ahead for a parliamentary vote this week on a centerpiece of the, overall, of the overhaul, a law that would give the governing coalition the final say over all judicial appointments. It also seeks to pass laws that would grant parliament, parliament the authority to override Supreme Court decisions with a basic majority and limit judicial review of the law. Netanyahu and his allies say the plan will restore a balance between the judicial and executive branches and rein in on what they see as an interventionist court with liberal sympathies. But critics say the constellation of laws will remove the checks and balances in Israel's democratic system and concentrate power in the hands of the governing coalition. They also say that Netanyahu, who was on trial for corruption charges, has a conflict of interests. Tens of thousands of people have taken to the streets over the last three months to demonstrate against the plan and the largest protest in the country's 75-year history. The U.S. State Department dismissed as completely false claims uh, repeatedly, repeated by Yar Netanyahu, the Prime Minister's son, that the U.S. government was financing these protests. Leaders of Israel's vibrant high-tech industry have said the changes will scare away investors Former top security officials have spoken out against the plan, and key allies, including the United States and Germany, have voiced concerns. In recent weeks, uh, discontent has surged even from within Israel's army, the most popular respected institution among Israel's uh, Jewish majority. A growing number of Israeli reservists, including fighter pilots, have threatened to withdraw from voluntary duty. Israel's military is facing a surge in fighting in the occupied West Bank, threats from Lebanon's Hezbollah militant group, and concerns that arch-enemy Iran is close to developing a nuclear weapons capability. Manuel Trattenberg, 
head of an influential Israeli think tank, the Institute for National Security Studies, said Netanyahu can dismiss his defense minister, but he cannot dismiss the warnings he heard from Gallant. Meanwhile, an Israeli Good Governance Group on Sunday asked the country's Supreme Court to punish Netanyahu for allegedly violating a conflict of interest agreement meant to prevent him from dealing with the country's judiciary while he is on trial for corruption. The move for quality government in Israel, a fierce opponent of the overhaul, asked the court to force Netanyahu to obey the law and sanctioned him either with a fine or prison time for not doing so. It said he was not above the law. A prime minister who doesn't obey the court and the provisions of the law is privileged and an anarchist, said Elad Shraga, uh, the head of the group, echoing language used by Netanyahu and his allies against protesters opposed to the overhaul. The prime minister will be forced to bow his head before the law and comply with the provisions of the law. The prime minister responded by saying the appeal should be dismissed and that the Supreme Court didn't have grounds to intervene. Netanyahu is barred by the country's attorney general from directly dealing with the government's plan to transform the judiciary based on a conflict of interest agreement he is bound to, and which the Supreme Court acknowledged in a ruling over Netanyahu's fitness to serve while on trial for corruption. Instead, Justice Minister Yariv Levin, a close confidant of Netanyahu, is spearheading the overhaul. But Thursday, after Parliament passed a law making it harder to remove a sitting Prime Minister, Netanyahu said he was unshackled from the Attorney General's decision and vowed to wade into the crisis and mend the rift in the nation. That declaration prompted the Attorney General, Gela Baharav Milara, uh, to warn that Netanyahu was breaking his conflict of interest agreement by enter entering the fray. The fast-paced legal and political developments have catapulted Israel into uncharted territory and toward a burgeoning constitutional crisis, said Guy Lurie, a research fellow at the Israeli Democracy Institute, a Jerusalem think tank. We are at the start of a constitutional crisis in the sense that there is a disagreement over the source of authority and legitimacy of different governing bodies, he said. If Netanyahu continues to intervene in the overhaul, Baharav Miaras uh, could launch an investigation into whether he violated the conflict of interest agreement, which could lead to additional charges against him, Lurie said. It is unclear how the court, which is at the center of the divide surrounding the overhaul, will treat the request to sanction Netanyahu. The Movement for Quality Government said the court had given Netanyahu and the Attorney General a week to respond. Netanyahu was on trial for charges of fraud, breach of trust, and accepting bribes in three affairs involving wealthy associates and powerful media moguls. He denies wrongdoing. That was tens of thousands protest across Israel by Elon Ben-Zion from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, March 27, 2023. Ben-Zion, or Zion, writes for the Associated Press. AP, AP writer Tia Goldenberg and Tel Aviv contributed to this report. All right, and here is another one from the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, March 28, 2023. This threat to Israel comes from within. Netanyahu takes time out on judicial overhaul, but delay may not be enough to save his government. By Tracy Wilkinson and Laura King. Washington. 
Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's longest-serving prime minister, is a legendary master of political survival. For once, he may have overplayed his hand. As he frantically plots a strategy to emerge from the worst domestic crisis in Israel's 75-year history, Netanyahu must find a way to keep his radical, ultra-Orthodox coalition partners on board while attempting to pacify the hundreds of thousands of angry Israelis filling the streets in the name of defending democracy. If he fails, his government could easily dissolve. If that were to happen, it is unclear who would fill the void or what new unrest could be ignited. Israel has long been synonymous with conflict, but for the most, but for the moment, the most serious existential threat it faces comes not from its Arab neighbors, but from its own internal divisions. Netanyahu late Monday announced he would postpone, but not cancel, his plans to overhaul Israel's Supreme Court and judiciary in a way that would make judges more beholden to politicians. He said he was acting to avoid civil war. Critics say the plan would destroy the checks and balances that have made the courts an important pillar of Israel's democracy. When there is an opportunity to avoid civil war through dialogue, I, as Prime Minister, am taking a time out for dialogue, Netanyahu said in a nationally televised address. The vote in the Knesset, or Parliament, will be uh, delayed until after the Passover break, which starts next week. It was unclear, however, uh, whether postponement would placate the opposition, which has swelled from the left to include Israel Israelis of all political persuasions, as well as the military, the Mossad spy agency, and high-tech entrepreneurs. After 12 weeks of regular demonstrations, a far larger segment of Israeli society was galvanized over the weekend when Netanyahu abruptly fired his defense minister, Yoav Gallant, who became the first government member to, uh, uh, to openly criticize the judicial overhaul. The retired major general warned that the plan had already weakened Israel's nation, national security by alienating legions of military personnel, from elite combat pilots to army reservists who refused to report to duty in protest. Israel burst into rolling chaos Monday. The country's largest trade, un junior, trade union, the umbrella organization Histerut, with about 800,000 members, called on members to observe a general strike. That forced a partial shutdown of the international airport, which Israel has prided itself on keeping open through numerous crises, with outgoing flights canceled and thousands of passengers stranded. The protest strike also triggered walkouts at universities, hospitals, ports, and even all of Israel's embassies and consulates the world over. Public transportation was curtailed, and the fast-food behemoth McDonald's closed its doors. After Netanyahu's remarks Monday night, Hestadrut called off the strike. Israel's figurehead president, Isaac Herzog, who was warned of the danger of Israel plunging into a civil war, urged Netanyahu to halt the judicial overhaul. Our security, economy, society, all are under threat, Herzog said Monday. Wake up now. Herzog later welcomed Netanyahu's decision to pause. In what might sound to many Americans like a familiar tactic, Netanyahu cast his critics and not himself as a threat to the country's security and sought to position himself as a victim of perfidious judges and prosecutors. 
He is on trial on corruption charges for allegedly doing favors for wealthy businessmen in exchange for gifts and favorable media coverage. The most radical members of his government are unlikely to give Netanyahu much space to maneuver. Itamar Ben-Givur, the ultra-nationalist security minister whose history of anti-Arab hate has made him a lightning rod for much of the criticism of the government, said that when the debate over the judicial changes resumes, lawmakers will consult with the opposition to find a compromise. But if that proves impossible, he said, the overhaul would proceed. Earlier, he had warned Netanyahu not to surrender to anarchy. In fact, some of the same right-wing political allies who threw Netanyahu a lifeline in forming this government now appeared uh, poised to turn on him if he tried to compromise with his foes. Nor has Netanyahu found much support abroad. His polish as a statesman has long been a major component of his carefully, drafted, carefully crafted self-image and a tool for creating distractions for, from domestic political crises. But those vaunted powers appeared to be deserting him as he made the recent rounds of the main European capitals dogged by demonstrators and chastised by the leaders of France, Britain, and even Germany, loath to criticize Israel ever since its establishment after the, uh, the end of World War II. Expatriate Israelis, including many American Jews, have emerged as among his most venomous critics. The Biden administration has taken a more measured approach refusing to defend Netanyahu, but also refraining from harsh condemnation as he has repeatedly violated his pledges to American officials to not expand Jewish settlements on Palestinian land in the West Bank and his promises to seek consensus on his judicial overhaul. Senior U.S. administration officials said they are pursuing quiet, behind-the-scenes diplomacy, but they also acknowledge they don't want to criticize Israel too forcefully. We have been very consistent and very clear, uh, both privately and publicly, that the concern about this pending legislation is that it would fly in the face of the whole idea of checks and balances, John F. Kirby, a spokesman for the U.S. National Security Council, said Monday. Kirby said President Biden, in a telephone conversation last week with Netanyahu, was very, very forthright in stressing the need to find a way forward based on compromise with the broadest possible base of popular support. Israel was one of 122 countries the U.S. invited to Washington for its summit for democracy this week, and Netanyahu was scheduled to speak. U.S. officials repeatedly pressed, refused to comment on whether he was still part of the program. Even before he began presiding over the most right-wing government in the state's history, Netanyahu has long exploited the fault lines that have riven the country into warring camps, it was part of his formula for success. But weeks of protests have also created odd political alliances with some traditional rivals finding common ground in the notion that the prime minister has embarked on an enormously destructive path. And in the Jewish diaspora, some of Israel's most loyal supporters have begun to come out against the, the plans and actions of Netanyahu's government. At a rally outside the Israeli embassy in Washington over the weekend, several hundred protesters, mostly American Jews, waved blue and white Israeli flags and chanted democracy in Hebrew and English as they called for Netanyahu to shove permanently his plans for the judiciary. Martin Indyke, one of the most well-known U.S. diplomats involved in the Middle East, spoke to the crowd. He acknowledged it was the first time he had addressed a protest rally 
as he was usually on the inside making policy. Israel is in trouble, said Indyke, a two-time U.S. ambassador to Israel and special envoy and Middle East negotiator in the Obama and Clinton administrations. Subordinating judges to politicians in a country that doesn't have a constitution, Indyke warned, will undermine not only Israel's democracy, but also the relationship between the United States and Israel. The strategic interests and values that the U.S. and Israel share, including the hundreds of billions of dollars Washington has dedicated to Israel's military capabilities, have also been undermined as a result of this assault on Israel's democracy, Indyke wrote, said. Most of the participants identify themselves as lifelong Zionists dedicated to Israel, and that, they said, is why they were protesting. This demonstration in no way, shape, or form can be perceived as anti-Israel, said Susie Gelman, longtime activist in Jewish organizations and now chair of the Israeli Policy Forum and Advocacy Group. This is for Israel, for Israel's future, which is so closely linked to our future as American Jews. Similar rallies are being held in capitals all over the world. And at an anti-Netanyahu protest in Berlin on Monday evening, demonstrators shouted shame, shame, when word emerged of the deal under which the prime minister would temporarily pause his effort to ram through the changes to the judiciary, but would also mollify a key far-right partner. He's acting out He's uh, acting only out of his own private interest. 29-year-old Israeli pianist Montan Fischoff, who is living and working in the German capital, said of the Israeli leader, I'm so worried about our democracy. That was This Threat to Israel Comes from Within by Tracy Wilkinson and Laura King from the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, March 28, 2023. Time staff writers Wilkinson and King reported from Washington and Berlin, respectively. Okay, now we've got a couple of opinion articles here from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, March 28, 2023, The Biblical Fall of Benjamin Netanyahu. In firing his defense minister, Israel's longest-serving leader placed loyalty to himself above loyalty to country by Yossi Klein Halevi. Benjamin Netanyahu may not realize it yet, but his dare against the political odds is over. Israel's longest-serving prime minister, who was re-elected in November despite an ongoing corruption trial and whom even rivals acknowledged was a political magician, is out of tricks. This fall won't happen imminently, but his coalition of ultra-nationalists, religious fundamentalists, and the merely corrupt uh, and the merely corrupt is losing its moral legitimacy, even among growing numbers of its voters. Netanyahu's fatal mistake was his firing Sunday of his defense minister, Yoav Gallant, for calling on the government to halt its judicial revolution, legislation that would erode the independence of Israel's Supreme Court and destroy the nation's fragile system of checks and balances, effectively concentrating governance in the hands of the prime minister. Gallant noted the deepening rift within the army over the plan and the growing protest movement among army reservists refusing to serve and warned that the nation's security was at risk. In firing Gallant and ignoring his warning, Netanyahu placed loyalty to himself above loyalty to country. With Iran approaching the nuclear threshold, possibly in a matter of weeks, even as Palestinian terror attacks increase and Hezbollah probes, weakness, probes weaknesses in Israel's northern border defense, perhaps in preparation for the next war, Netanyahu is presiding over the erosion of the military's cohesion. 
the man who'd convinced Israelis that only he was tough and shrewd enough to keep Israel safe in the Middle East has betrayed Israeli security. Immediately after Netanyahu announced Gallant's firing, tens of thousands of young people gathered in the streets, blocking traffic and lighting bonfires through the night. The ranks grew, and a general strike escalated in the morning. Meanwhile, several members of Netanyahu's Likud party in the Knesset declared their support for suspending his judicial legislation and negotiating with opposition on reform instead. For the first time, Netanyahu's grip on his party has faltered. In a national speech Monday night in Israel, the Prime Minister announced a temporary halt to the legislation. Netanyahu's miscalculation was to assume that the Israeli public would acquiesce in his transparent attempt to extricate himself from his legal troubles. He faces multiple charges by initiating the most far-reaching judicial transformation in the nation's history. Instead, since January, an astonishing protest movement spontaneously emerged, initially drawing tens of thousands and now hundreds of thousands to weekly demonstrations around the country. By simultaneously assaulting liberal Israelis on multiple fronts, from diminishing democracy to augmenting ultra-Orthodox power to indulging political corruption to tolerating growing settler violence, this government left large numbers of Israelis feeling disenfranchised and desperate. Resorting to the, the divisive political strategy that has served him in the past, Netanyahu tried to delegitimize the protesters, denouncing them as anarchists and leftists, by which he meant not patriots. His son Yar went one step further, calling the protesters Nazis. Meanwhile, some uh, Netanyahu supporters began physically attacking demonstrators with no rebuke from the prime minister. But this time, the usual tactics didn't work. There is no more patriotic protest movement anywhere than this movement for Israeli democracy, which is led by veterans of the country's toughest combat units and, those, and whose symbol is the Israeli flag. Even more than rage at Netanyahu, <clears throat> the strongest emotion one senses among the protesters is an overwhelming love for Israel and fear for its future. The man who rose to power as the guardian of Israeli patriotism has been defeated by a movement of patriots. Netanyahu's tragedy is that, at the end of his long political career, he now endangers his own most precious legacies. The leader who presided over Israel's high-tech revolution jeopardizes the Israeli economy with his judicial recklessness, as the tech companies contemplate relocating abroad and leading economists warn of impending disaster. Thanks to the Abraham Accords, which the Trump administration initiated and Netanyahu endorsed, Israel established relations with four Arab countries, in effect ending the Arab world's siege against the Jewish state. Yet by including extreme anti-Arab parties in his coalition, he is endangering the durability of those agreements. No world leader did more to focus international attention on the danger of a nuclearizing Iran. Netanyahu's solemn vow was that the Jewish state would never allow a regime promoting Holocaust denial and commitment to Israel's destruction to acquire nuclear weapons. Yet Netanyahu's judicial plan has left Israel and its army distracted and divided. If Iran acquires the bomb, that too will be Netanyahu's legacy. There is something biblical in the tragedy of Benjamin Netanyahu. 
followers often greet him with an old Hebrew song celebrating King David by substituting Netanyahu's name, Bibi, King of Israel. No doubt Bibi has been attempted to compare himself to David, ancient Israel's greatest king. But in an interview with journalist uh, Barry Weiss shortly uh, before he was elected last fall to his fifth term, Netanyahu inadvertently revealed a darker foreboding about his place in history. Asked to name his favorite biblical character, Netanyahu replied, King Saul. He was tragic. Saul, the first king of Israel, ended his reign in defeat. Half, ma half mad and disgraced, replaced by the upstart David. Netanyahu, the most talented and ambitious leader of his generation of Israeli politicians, might have been another David. Instead, as more and more sectors of Israeli society turned against him, and his hero story is transformed from savior to destroyer, it is the specter of Saul that torments his end. That was the biblical fall of Benjamin Netanyahu by Yossi Klein Halivi, from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, March 28, 2023. Yossi Klein Halivi is a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem and author of Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. All right, here is another article, opinion article that is, from the same opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, March 28, 2023. What Israel's right wing learned from the Trump playbook by Samuel G. Friedman. Early in 2019, as Israel was heading into a divisive parliamentary election, a massive campaign poster along a Tel Aviv freeway showed Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu shaking hands with President Trump. Now five elections and one near civil war later, that same highway has been repeatedly blocked by protesters against Netanyahu's plan to place the country's Supreme Court under his political control. Nothing could be more grimly appropriate to the crisis of democracy in Israel than the notion of Trump's image looming over it. For, however, much the turmoil in Israel arises from such distinctively Israeli causes, such as the nation's continuing lack of a constitution, Netanyahu and his far-right coalition have made the Trump playbook their political Torah. Netanyahu, who portrayed his bromance with Trump as the essential factor in the president's many under-reprecated concessions to Israel, moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, recognizing Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, pulling the United States out of the Iran nuclear arms deal, ignoring and undermining the Palestinian Authority. And Netanyahu was hardly taking a risk in conflating himself with Trump. A Pew Research Center poll in early 2020 found that 71% of Israelis approved of Trump. In other words, Israeli support for Trump exceeded by roughly 20 points the one-half share of Israeli voters who backed Netanyahu's various right-wing coalitions in the last five Knesset elections. Perhaps many of those centrist and center-right Israelis genuinely believe that accepting the benefits of Trump's largesse was not tantamount to endorsing his brand of demagogue, anti-democratic rule. Presumably, they were like the untold millions of Trump voters who said they wished he wouldn't tweet so much but loved his border wall. The problem in both the U.S. and Israel is that when it comes to Trump, you cannot separate whatever purports to be a policy agenda from the relentless and deliberate effort to erode democracy itself. As Rick Wilson of the Lincoln Project titled a book that was released about the same time as the Tel Aviv billboard went up, 
Everything Trump touches dies. Being an American Jew and a liberal Zionist, I have often heard from Israelis that people like me just don't understand the dangerous neighborhood in which the Jewish state exists. And that's true. I don't go through every day weighing the risks of a Hamas suicide bomber and Iranian a nuclear weapon, a wave of Hezbollah missiles. But when I was decrying Trump as a candidate and president, an opinion shared by the overwhelming majority of American Jews who voted against him in 2016 and 2020, I was saying that the U.S. is also a dangerous neighborhood with some cautionary lessons to teach. Trump did not come from nowhere. He traveled the hateful path trod by Andrew Jackson, Jefferson Davis, Charles Coughlin, Gerald L. K. Smith, and George Wallace. It's revealing that the most toxic figure in Israeli politics, uh, to history, political history until Netanyahu was Rabbi Meir Kahane, born and bred in the U.S., where his anti-black racism anticipated the anti-Arab version he espoused in Israel. A previous version of Israel saw fit to outlaw Kahane's political party. Now that party's descendants form integral members of Netanyahu's narrow governing majority. If that scenario, scenario sounds more than a little like America in the Trump years, it should. The parallels are instructive and ominous. Trump narrowly won election in a backlash against the multiracial democracy embodied by his predecessor, Barack Obama. Netanyahu assembled his current majority in a backlash against a previous coalition that dared to include an Israeli Arab party along with a wide spectrum of Jewish-Israeli ones. Trump welcomed into his movement the type of racist anti-Semites and neo-Nazis previously considered radioactive to any presidency. Netanyahu not only included in his coalition such settler extremists as Itamar Ben-Givur and Bezalel Smotrich, but bought their participation with ministerial appointments. Ben-Givur's consent was required Monday for Netanyahu to suspend parliamentary action parliamentary action of the judicial takeover, and Begiver's reward was reportedly the Prime Minister's promise to create a new militia under the radical politician's control. Trump interpreted his dubious electoral mandate, which included losing the popular vote to Hillary Clinton by several million votes, as license to populate the federal courts and the Supreme Court itself with right-wing judges and, and to attempt to control the American military as his personal army. Netanyahu, having scrapped to, uh, scraped together a thin majority in the Knesset, set out to seize control of Israel's Supreme Court. This stunt is happening, of course, at the same time that the Prime Minister faces charges of bribery and fraud, with the potential of being barred from office. And one more parallel, Trump's first indictment may be just days away depicting themselves as tribunes of the real people the Prime Minister and former President alike blamed the troubles on the elite. When Netanyahu postponed the next stage of his judicial overhaul Monday, he may have spared Israel its own January 6th insurrection, at least for the moment. And in the streets of Israel, carrying the flag of genuine patriotism during all of their marches, his multitude of opponents may have shown both their country and the United States the example of standing up to MAGA in any language. That was what Israel's right wing learned from the Trump playbook by Samuel G. Friedman from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times Tuesday, March 28, 2023. Samuel G. Friedman is the author of books that include 
Jew versus Jew, the struggle for the soul of American Jewry. Obviously, this was written just before Trump was officially in, uh, indi indicted, which happened this past Thursday. All right, here's one more Israeli story and one more opinion article from the Los Angeles Times opinion section, Saturday, April 1st, 2023. Um, one of the Israeli protesters, This Is Why, by John E. Golub in Jerusalem. A few minutes before midnight on March 26, my wife and I got out of bed, dressed, and marched up the hill to join thousands of other protesters outside the Knesset, Israel's parliament. It was my 13th protest since the movement began and my wife's 25th. What caused two people in their 60s to take to the streets 38 times in two months? Nothing less than the evisceration of our democracy. First, let's understand what Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition government has proposed to do. The main elements of the legislation to overhaul the judiciary are de facto elimination of judicial review of legislation, politicization of the judicial appointment process, cancelization of the High Court of Justice Justice's rights to intervene in government's decision based on a so-called standard of extreme unreasonableness, politicization of ministerial legal counsels, career, servant, career civil servants who provide an important check on government overreach and a law whose immediate effect is to allow Ari Derry, the former health and interior minister, to serve as minister despite his criminal record. In addition, the Knesset has already passed a law to cancel the, the prerogative, currently the, pre, the, the prerogative currently held by the High Court and the Government Legal Council to declare the Prime Minister unfit based on, for example, a felony conviction. Since our Prime Minister is currently on trial, the net effect is to place him above the law. These changes are devastating to Israel's democracy, which is fragile compared with the more robust version in the United States. Here are some of the checks on power in the U.S. that Israel does not have. 1. A written constitution. 2. A bicameral legislature. 3. A head of the executive branch who is often different from the head of the majority of the party in Congress. And 4. A federal system with states' rights. Israel has none of these. The Prime Minister is also typically the head of the coalition's largest party to parliament. in Parliament. There is no written constitution. There are no states. Only, the only check on absolute governmental power is our high court. For that reason, Israelis have always revered and safeguarded their high, their high court of justice in the way Americans revere and safeguard the Constitution. To add to this crisis, in less than four months in office, the government's efforts have gone entirely toward the benefit of its members. Nothing has been done to mitigate the Iranian threat, improve domestic security, reduce Iran's outrageous cost of living, or sign new peace treaties with Arab nations, although the Prime Minister touted precisely th those four issues for his opening speech to the new government. There are small these are a small sample of the problems this government is ignoring while it focuses instead on securing unlimited power. Instead of working toward these lofty goals, the government has managed to bring the Israel Defense Forces to the threshold of an unprecedented crisis. To reduce foreign direct investment in Israeli high-tech to near zero and to threaten our status as the lone democracy in the Middle East. From the beginning, this protest has had a uniquely Israeli vibe. 
the Prime Minister's pitiful attempt to delegitimize hundreds of thousands of protesters by calling them anarchists got a powerful and passionate video response from a clean-cut 20-something combat reservist who asked, You're calling me an anarchist? Women all over the country began marching in handmaid's tail costumes. The high-tech game company Playtica uh, placed a giant sign in Herzliya reading, Democracy is not a game. Someone even put a sticker on the trash bin outside my house. No throwing democracy in the garbage. The middle class and high-tech communities who bear the brunt of the tax burden are not willing to go back to the status quo, not willing to support stipends for the ultra-orthodox who choose not to work, who get sweetheart tax, uh, tax treatment, don't serve in the army, don't study a core curriculum, including citizenship, don't learn any marketable skills in school, and do simple math, can't do simple math, can't speak simple English. Nor are they willing to risk their children's lives to protect messianic West Bank settlers who want to kill or deport Palestinians. This government has lost its right to exist. No government can attempt to institute a dictatorship, fall, and keep on governing. We need elections and a coalition drawing support from both the traditional left and right. We need to change the definitions of left and right and stop making our legitimate security needs an excuse for ignoring all other issues. We need to focus on a sustainable society founded on a constitution, social justice, a core curriculum in education, including citizenship studies for everyone, fair sharing of the burden of army service, and an end to the occupation of the West Bank and the moral acrobatics that allow people to think that they can live in freedom while a few miles away, people lack basic civil rights. As someone once said, if you're explaining, you're losing. Israel's zombie government and its apologists toss around many explanations for why this power grab is a good thing. As a protester, I'm only interested in one thing, democracy. I'll be at this, on the street again screaming it this Saturday. That was, I'm one of the Israeli protesters, This Is Why, by John E. Golub in Jerusalem. From the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, April 1st, 2023. John E. Golub, a physicist, has worked in academia and the high-tech industry in Israel since 1990. All right, and here is an, one more international story from the world section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, March 28, 2023. Zelensky meets with UN Atomic Agency Director, Bahana Arborhova, Zaporizhia, Ukraine. The United Nations Atomic Energy Chief warned Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in a meeting Monday that the perilous situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, Europe's largest, isn't getting any better, as relentless fighting in the area puts the facility at risk of a nuclear disaster. The Zaporizhia nuclear power plant's six reactors are in shutdown, and it is receiving the electricity it needs to prevent a reactor meltdown through just one remaining power line. It has, on occasion, had to switch to emergency diesel gener generators to power its, its essential cooling system. In a meeting with Zelensky in southern Ukraine, covered exclusively by the Associated Press, International Atomic Agency, Energy Agency Director General Rafael Mariano Grossi said the situation at the plant remains tense because of the heavy military presence around it and a recent blackout at the facility, 
something that has occurred repeatedly since Russian forces took it over last year. Grossi plans to visit the plant this week, his second trip there since Russia's invasion 13 months ago. The Vienna-based agency has had staff permanently deployed at the plant since Grossi's last visit in September. Earlier this month, fighting erupted power uh, interrupted power supply to, uh, to the plant for half a day, forcing the staff to activate backup generators. Grossi uh, expressed alarm at that development. Each time we are rolling a dice, he told the agency at the time. And if we allow this to continue time after time, then one day our luck will run out. Grossi and Zelensky met in the city of Zaporizhia, and which is in Ukrainian-held territory about 30 miles northeast of the nuclear plant with the same name. The IAEA announced in January that it was placing teams of experts at all four of Ukraine's nuclear power plants to reduce the risk of accidents, including the now-closed Chernobyl plant, whose deadly nuclear accident in 1986 spread fallout over much of Europe. Grossi emphasized that his seventh trip to Ukraine underlined his commitment and support for as long as it takes. Also attending the meeting were the other IAEA officials, Andrei Yermak, the head of Zelensky's office, and Petro Kotin, the head of Ukrainian opera uh, nuclear operator Energotum. While at Zavarhizia, Zelensky also inspected military positions in the partially occupied province and awarded soldiers with military honors. He visited wounded soldiers at a hospital as well as an apartment building that Kiev says was hit by Russian forces Wednesday, killing at least one person and injuring more than 30. Red, more than 30. Residents were still shocked by the experience. It's terrifying. I cannot find the words to tell you, said Hannah Budkova, 39, who was at a busy, a busy playground in front of the apartment block with her nearly two-year-old daughter. I'm afraid to go anywhere near the windows. Zelensky later visited Nikopol, a frequently shelled city across the Dnipro River from the nuclear power plant, according to the presidential office. Elsewhere, <clears throat> two people were killed and 29 wounded Monday when Russian forces shelled the eastern Ukrainian city of Slovansk in the partially occupied Donetsk region, officials said. Video of the aftermath showed damaged residential buildings, debris in the streets, and vehicles on fire. Zelensky described the attacks as terrorism. Russia has denied targeting residential areas even though artillery and rocket strikes have hit Ukrainian apartment buildings and civilian infrastructure daily during the war. The, Slovan the Slovyansk attack followed a typical pattern of long-range shelling adopted by the Kremlin's forces, especially in recent months as the fight became deadlocked during the bitterly cold winter. In the Donetsk region, some 10 cities and villages were shelled by Russian forces over the previous 24 hours, Zelensky's office reported Monday. On Monday, on Monday morning, Russian missiles hit the city of Avdivika, damaging residential buildings, a hotel, and a courthouse, it said. Avdivika Mayor Vitaly Barabash said utility companies were being evacuated from the frontline city as it resembles more and more a landscape from post-apocalyptic movies. Attacks also intensified in the partially occupied southeastern 
Zavarhezizia region, where 14 settlements on the front were shelled, authorities said. In the partially occupied Kyrgyzstan region, the Ukrainian-controlled part of the province was shelled 20 times by Russian artillery and aircraft, wounding four people, the presidential office said. Several explosions shook the Russia-occupied city of Melitopol in the Zaryzhia region, damaging a building where Russian security forces are quartered, said the exiled elected mayor Ivan Fyodorov. The Russian-installed authority said artillery shelling of Melitopol partially destroyed a vocational school building, damaged several other buildings, and wounded four people. Earlier, Zelensky met in Kiev with British actor Orlando Bloom, Ukrainian official Yermak, said Monday. Bloom, who is also a UNICEF Goodwill ambassador, arrived in the Ukrainian capital over the weekend and visited its suburb of Irpin. During his meeting with Zelensky, Bloom said he was struck by the courage and resilience of Ukrainians who, despite the war, remained strong, Yermak wrote. Bloom will support projects to provide humanitarian assistance and restore infrastructure focused on ensuring the interests of Ukrainian children, the official said. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz said Monday at a meeting in the Netherlands that Germany has fulfilled its promised delivery of 18 advanced Leopold II battle tanks to Ukraine. That was Zelensky meets with UN Atomic Agency Director by Hannah Asharova from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, March 28, 2023. Archerova writes for the Associated Press. Okay, we go now to back to the U.S. from the Business Section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, March 30, 2023. Ex-Starbucks CEO Senators Clash. At hearing, Howard Schultz defends the company's response to union organizing by Josh Edelson. Recently departed Starbucks chief executive Howard Schultz forcefully defended the company's response to union organizing at a Wednesday Senate hearing, rejecting judges and prosecutors' accusations that the coffee chain repeatedly violated labor laws. We have not broken the law. We have simply tried to defend ourselves, Schultz told Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. Asked by Chairman Senator Bernie Sanders, independent of Vermont, about a labor board judge's ruling that the company had committed egregious violations of the law, Schultz said, we're confident those allegations will be proven false. Schultz testified that his own involvement in union-related activities during his recent stint as interim CEO was de minimis, and that he had never been involved in discussions about terminating workers who were part of union drives. Schultz bristled at Sanders' repeated references to him as a billionaire, which he said were unfair. I came from nothing, he said. Yes, I have billions of dollars. I earned it. No one gave it to, uh, to me, and I have shared it with workers. When asked by Sanders whether he had ever threatened, coerced, or intimidated a worker, Schultz was even more equivocal. I've had conversations that could have been interpreted in a different way than I intended, Schultz said. The National Labor Relations Board's General Counsel issued a complaint last year alleging Schultz's comments to a worker in a meeting institute constituted an illegal threat. The worker told Bloomberg News that Schultz asked, If you hate Starbucks so much, why don't you go work somewhere else? That's not exactly what I said, the former CEO told the com committee, later adding the employee had a disruptive mentality, 
Schultz said what he told the worker was, if you hate the company, you could work somewhere else, and that his comment was not a threat. Throughout the testimony, Testy back and forth with lawmakers, Schultz, uh, who drank from a Starbucks-branded cup, said the company respects the right to organize, but prefers to deal with employees directly without a union. I have the right, the and the company has the right, to have a preference, and a preference is to maintain the direct relationship, he said. Unlike other companies in the past where unions serve a, a useful role, Schultz said, we do nothing that is nefarious. Starbucks home state senator Patty Murray, Democrat of Washington, joined in the grilling, saying she has been disappointed hearing employees really troubling reports about anti-union conduct. Schultz agreed to testify before the committee this month after Sanders scheduled a vote on a subpoena that would force the executive to appear. Schultz had been set to step down as CEO at the end of the month, but instead left his position two weeks early. He remains on the company's board. Sanders opened the hearing citing broad statistics on yawning income inequality and rising interest in organizing among U.S. workers. In order to combat this increase in union organizing, corporations have engaged in an unprecedented level of illegal union-busting activities, he said. Over the past 18 months, Starbucks has waged the most aggressive and illegal union-busting campaign in the modern history of our country. That union-busting campaign has been led by Howard Schultz. Republicans repeatedly rose to the company's defense during the hearing. The committee's top Republican, Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, described the proceeding as a smear campaign against Schultz and Starbucks based upon allegations that everyone knows are still under litigation. He urged the committee to also explore allegations of misconduct by the NLRB itself. Such allegations raise a question, Cassidy said. Are NLRB employees weaponizing the agency against American employers to be benefit politically con uh, politically connected labor unions? The hearing has drawn unusual levels of attention. More than 100 people, including Starbucks employees there to support the union or the company leadership, lined the halls waiting to enter the hearing an hour before it was scheduled to start. The Workers United Labor Union has prevailed in elections about at about 300 of Starbucks' roughly 9,000 corporate-owned U.S. cafes over the previous 60 months, spreading from an initial landmark victory in Buffalo, New York, to sites throughout the country. But none of the newly unionized cafes have come close to securing a collective bargaining agreement with the company, and the pace of new unionization petitions has slowed down as workers allege that the company has been retaliating in stores and stonewalling at bargaining tables. National Labor Relations Board prosecutors have issued more than 80 complaints against Starbucks, accusing the company of illegal anti-union tactics, including threats, store shutdowns, and terminations of dozens of activists. Administrative law judges have issued nine rulings against the company over the last year. Federal judges have ordered the company to reinstate fire workers in Tennessee and Michigan, and NLRB members have ruled that the company illegally retaliated against workers in Philadelphia and refused to negotiate with union members in Seattle. Starbucks has said repeatedly that all claims of anti-union behavior are categorically false and is appealing many of the rulings. 
The company said recently that many of the labor board's cases against it con constitute efforts to establish new labor law precedents in situations where the company is already complying with existing labor law. Where partners have been subject to discipline, those partners engaged in misconduct contrary to Starbucks policies and procedures, Schultz said in written testimony submitted to the committee. That was ex-Starbucks CEO Senator Clash by Josh Ed Edelson, Edelson from the business section of the Los Angeles Times Thursday, March 30th, 2023. Edelson writes for Bloomberg. Writers Leslie Patton, Tatiana Manet, and Diego Arias Munoz of Bloomberg contributed to this report. Okay, we got a couple of sports articles here. And uh, this first one is from the sports section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, March 29th, 2023. Reports. Buyers submit bids to Snyder. Commander's owner gets offers for a team, including from a group with Magic Johnson by Sam Farmer. Phoenix. The process of finding a new owner for the Washington Commanders has entered a new phase. According to multiple reports, a group led by Josh Harris and Mitchell Rails, and including Lakers legend Magic Johnson, has submitted a fully financed bid for the franchise, now owned by the embattled Daniel Snyder. ESPN, citing an unnamed source, has reported the group has met Snyder's $6 billion asking price. But there are more billionaires in the mix. Among them, Canadian developer Steve Astapalopoulos. ESPN has reported that he too has submitted a bid of $6 billion. And Houston Rockets owner Tillman Fertitta. Some people anticipate Amazon founder Jeff Bezos has entered to enter the fray. NFL commissioner Roger Goodall, who spoke at the conclusion of the meetings, said the league got an update on the commander's situation Tuesday afternoon. The Washington Commanders are obviously the ones conducting the process on the sale, Goodell said. If there is a sale, they will notify us and we will proceed on that one. Speculation uh, about uh, new owners has been percolating since November, when Daniel and his wife Tanya announced that they had hired Bank of America to begin the process of potentially selling part or all of the team. The anticipated sale of the Commanders, which requires approval of three-quarters of the other 31 clubs, is a major topic at the annual league meetings. The Denver Broncos were the last NFL franchise to change hands, selling for a record $4.65 billion in August. The widely unpopular Snyder is at the center of multiple investigations into the running of this team, according to a congressional, a congre a congressional report uh, released by December, in December, Snyder permitted and participated in the club's pervasive and toxic work culture, worked to dissuade and intimidate witnesses from cooperating in a 14-month inquiry, and claimed more than 100 times in testimony that he could not recall answers to basic questions. In July 2021, the NFL fined the then-Washington football team $10 million and required that Snyder relinquish day-to-day -day operations of the franchise for several months after an independent investigation found the club's workplace highly unprofessional, particularly for women. At that point, the team had been under investigation for a year stemming from dozens of sexual harassment allegations by previous employees over a 15-year period. Although a sale of the commanders could require weeks or even months, there is a possibility a vote could take place at the league's main meetings in Minnesota.
Harris owns the NBA's Philadelphia 76ers and NHL's New Jersey Devils and teamed with Rails, R-A-L-E-S, a Maryland billionaire originally from Pittsburgh. Johnson owns a minority share of the Dodgers and long has expressed interest in being part of an NFL ownership group. That was Report Buyers Submit Bids to Snyder by Sam Farmer from the sports section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, March 9, 29th, that is, 2023. All right, here's something else from the sports section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, March 30th, 2023. Rosenthal's got perfect setting for success. U.S. team star who moved from Texas to Manhattan Beach will debut from Mira Costa by Eric Sondheimer on high schools. Looking out the top floor window of the family home in Manhattan Beach, six foot eight volleyball standout Tread uh, Rosenthal can see the ocean. If he walks two blocks, he can touch the sand and listen to the waves. Asked how often he thanks his parents for moving here, Rosenthal said, I would say every day. He went from football craze Texas to volleyball appreciative Southern California, and the rest is history. He was named most valuable player of the Pan American Games for the U19 US team that won the gold medal this month. He's a 16-year-old junior setter at volleyball power Mira Costa High, getting ready to play his first match against rival Loyola on Friday night at Loyola Marymount. The intensity is higher than any game I've ever played in, and the crowd alone was crazy, he said of watching the matches last season. He was on the bench and couldn't play because he had played in Texas that fall, making him ineligible for a sophomore season at Miracosta. Now he's ready to face off against some of his good friends, such as Sean Kelly of Loyola, his U19 teammate. Rosenthal's father is Miracosta's athletic director, Mike Rosenthal, who was an All-American offensive lineman at Notre Dame and played nine seasons in the NFL. His mother, Lindsay, played volleyball at Notre Dame. The family's genes have resulted in three girls and one boy with size and athleticism, and Treed finally passed his 6'7 father in height. It's pretty good, but he can still beat me up if he wants, Tread said. Except none of the siblings are football players. Tread said there never was pressure to play the sport. At 205 pounds, he's not big enough to be a lineman like his father. He played five sports growing up and followed his two older sisters into volleyball, as did his younger sister. At 12, first he was a libero, then an outside hitter after injuries to teammates forced him to learn other positions. That versatility has left him with unique skills for his size. Throughout my life, I've played every position except for middle, he said. I understand every position. His size alone makes it strange seeing him play the, set, uh, the setter position, which usually is dominated by 5'10 players. It's rare, Loyola coach Michael Bale says of Rosenthal being a 6'8 setter. It's a huge advantage to have someone that big and athletic. Usually those 6'8 players are in the middle or the right side as outside hitter. Said Miracosta coach Avery Drost, Tread is really unique. There's not too many guys who are as big as he is with that soft touch. I think of him like LeBron James of the Lakers. He's a distributor and playmaker first and has the physical tools to be insane offensively. He's becoming too, uh, so much better all the time as a blocker. 
he has come a long way as a hitter and as a server. Committed to Hawaii, Rosenthal is still leading, learning volleyball, and the move to Southern California opened doors and led to better competition that can only improve his game. His father was a high school football coach in Texas before the family decided to make the move with no certain job prospects. Then he became Miracosa's athletic director. I had a weird day. Searched the internet and it was there, Mike said. A wing and a prayer. I was ready for something new. The family used to have a sand volleyball court in their backyard in Austin. Now the beach serves as their court. There has been much written about people moving from California to Texas. The reverse migration has left the Rosenthal's pleased. We went opposite and no complaints, Tread said. That was Rosenthal's Rosenthal's Got Perfect Setting for Success by Eric Sondheimer on High Schools from the sports section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, March 30th, 2023. On to some entertainment news now. This first one is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, March 26, 2023. LA's Patron Saint of the Displaced Creative Team by Chris Wagner. To read Scott Timberg's newly published collection of essays, boom times for the end of the world is to experience both a rush of cultural stimulation and an overwhelming sense of sadness. Timber, who loved Los Angeles and culture journalism with an intense passion, was among the essential chroniclers of the city. For New York Times LA, and then for the Los Angeles Times, he wrote of authors on the fringe and overlooked but vital corners of the city. Timber drank up LA's culture as only a thirsty outsider could. He was born in Palo Alto and raised in Maryland. But his love wasn't always requited. Despite highly original work and glowing performance reviews, Timberg was laid off from the Times in 2008, part of a wave of cutbacks at the paper and in the industry that his culture journalists particularly hard. That hit culture journalists particularly hard. He became a reluctant member of the gig economy, trying to make ends meet in a city that was and is, despite or perhaps because of its many charms, very expensive to call home. He tried moving to Athens, Georgia with his wife and son, but L.A. was in his blood and he soon returned. He found freelance work. His two books were well received, but he never got all the way back, financially or otherwise. He suffered from depression, and in 2019, he killed himself by jumping in a pedestrian, from a pedestrian building, from a pedestrian bridge near downtown. He was 50. Scott was just so present, and then he exterminated himself, says Dana Golia, former California poet laureate and a friend of Timberg for many years. Why did he do that? Because the culture was exterminating too. He just went along with what the outer world was telling him. Boom Times is both a celebration of a prod prod prodigious talent and a valediction for a lost soul. Timberg was drawn to subjects the average reader might not know, like John Ritchie, the pugnacious, proudly narcissistic literary chronicler of L.A.'s gay subculture. The novelist, whose small stature, impish smile, and barrel chest lend him the bearing of a well-exercised elf, treats writing like a big fight for which he is constantly training, he writes in the essay. The romantic egotist, originally published in the New York Times, or the great jazz photographer William Claxton, who did more than shoot striking photo photographs of great musicians, Timberg writes in Eye on Cool. He created the visual reality of West Coast jazz, a whole new way to picture the art. 
Jimberg was one of those guys who could write knowledgeably about seemingly anything, though most of it was drenched in the culture of the city he loved. I can relate to far too much of Timberg's tragedy. In 2019, I was laid off from my job as a culture critic for the Dallas Morning News, along with most of the art staff. I felt discarded and expendable, tossed aside by an institution I had served with pride for many years. And then it just kept raining. My life partner, Kate, was diagnosed with a terminal brain illness. She would be dead within 18 months. I was enraged at the world, and my own depression became the dominant voice in my head. It never said nice things. My life and my headspace got the better of me, got better with time, as did the flow of freelance work. But when I read Timberg, and when I read a, and when I read about him, it's, uh, it's with more than a passing sense of there, there, but for the grace of God, God I go. There is a bigger story here. One that Timberg both lived and chronicled. His 2015 book, Culture Clash, The Killing of the Creative Class, is a personal but also analytical and deeply reported elegy for a certain kind of work and those who do it. Timberg isn't just talking about artists. As he writes in the Boom Times essay, Down We Go Together, adapted for the, from the book, a more useful understanding of the creative class would, to, would include anyone who helps create or disseminate culture. So along with sculptors and architects, I mean DJs, bookstore clerks, theater set designers, people who edit books in publishing houses, and so on. He could have added culture journalists to the list. None of the above are extinct, yet. All have been dramatically marginalized by an increasingly automated society that purports to value culture but is decreasingly keen on spreading the good word, at least beyond the vogue for a clickbait and shallow fandom. Among Timberg's biggest admirers is Steve Wasserman, the publisher of Heyday Books, which put out Boom Times. He also published Culture Clutch when he was at Yale University Press. Wasserman met Timberg when he left a New York publishing career to take over the Los Angeles Times books cover coverage in 1996. He was promptly greeted with a Timberg piece in New York Times, which asked in Wasserman's paraphrase, what the hell is this egghead doing coming into town, and why is he not doing as much as his critics think he should be doing to promote Los Angeles literature? From there, Wasserman says, Scott and I became allies in the project to elevate the general level of literary conversation in Los Angeles, each from our own vantage points. They became good, they, they also became friends. So many across Timberg's path became his friends. Wasserman remembers Timberg as a patron saint of the displaced creative spirit. He also believes the city Timberg loved is much poorer without him. East Coast snobs always dismissed Los Angeles, claiming the endless sunshine had baked the brains of the inhabitants, Wasserman says. Scott pushed back against that. He was a meteorologist who analyzed the shifts in the changing weather of the city's culture. By that measure, he was remarkably accurate in his reportage. He captured a city and its shifting moods and performed in an invaluable service to his readers. It's hard to consider Timberg's value to Los Angeles and not just think of another late culture journalist, Jonathan Gold, the Pulitzer Prize-winning food and music critic for LA Weekly and the Los Angeles Times, who died of pancreatic cancer in 2018. These were writers who peeled back reductive stereotypes of a city as culturally vibrant as any in the world. They did it with wit and verb. Mostly, though, 
They did it with love. To read Boom Times for the End of the World is to experience that love anew, and to mourn the fact that Tim Burke is no longer here to feel it. It was Ellie's Patron Saint of the Displaced Creative Spirit by Chris Wagner from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, March 26, 2023. Wagner is a freelance writer based in Houston. And here's another one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, March 30th, 2023. Disney lays off Marvel veteran. Staff cuts include Ike Perlmuter, long a thorn in the side of Disney CEO Bob Iger by Meg James. Walt Disney Company has bounced Marvel Entertainment Chairman Isaac Ike Perlmutter. The 80-year-old comics titan, who has been a prickly presence within the Burbank Entertainment Company, got swept up in a broad cost-cutting move that began earlier this week. Disney confirmed Wednesday that Perlmutter had received his pink slip. When Disney purchased the comic book publisher Marvel in 2009, Perlmutter became one of the largest individual shareholders in the entertainment conglomerate, giving him rare power. Disney afforded the Israeli-American billionaire a wide berth to help shape Marvel's strategy and projects, including Iron Man and the Avengers, movies that have generated billions of dollars in box office receipts for Disney. In recent years, Perlmutter's purview has been significantly smaller and separate from the powerful Marvel film studio led by Kevin Feige. Perlmutter, once Marvel's chief executive, saw his role diminished in a 2015 management shuffle. The fracas began when Perlmutter tried to get Feige, the architect of Marvel's lucrative film strategy, fired. I thought that was a mistake that stepped in and stepped in to prevent that from happening, said Disney chief executive Bob Iger during a February appearance on CNBC. So I moved the movie-making operation of Marvel out from under Ike into the movie studio under Alan Horn. Perlmutter was not happy about that, and I think that unhappiness exists today. Perlmutter played a supporting role in Disney's recent boardroom drama when he lobbied Disney leadership to support the campaign of billionaire activist investor Nelson Peetz, P-E-I-T-Z, who was agitating to join the Disney board of directors. Peetz's efforts began last year before Iger returned to the company. At the time, Bob Chappick was still in charge, and Perlmutter called the embattled CEO, Disney financial officer Christine McCarthy, and board member Safra Katz to advocate for Pete's inclusion in the board, Disney said in a, regula in a regulatory filing. Perlmutter, according to Disney, said having Pates would help Mr. Chappick counter recent headwinds he had faced, solidify his position as CEO, and preempt any other potential shareholder nominations of director nominees. According to Disney's uh, filing, Perlmutter said, without Mr. P without Mr. Mr. P Pates there, uh, without Mr. Pates there, former executives, including Mr. Iger, would be back at Disney. After Iger returned in November, it made clear that Pates was not welcome on the board. Instead, Iger focused on a corporate restructuring and cost-cutting program to find $5.5 billion in savings. The plan includes the elimination of about 7,000 jobs, or about 4% of Disney's global workforce, with those layoffs expected to conclude before early summer. The cost-cutting 
won the endorsement of Pates, who disbanded his proxy campaign in February. The New York Times first reported that Perlmutter had been laid off. Perlmutter, who lives in Palm Beach, Florida, also is known for maintaining friend friendly relations with former President Trump. Iger, long and outspoken Democrat, has entertained the idea of running for president, though he decided against it. Despite the tensions with Disney, Perlmutter was key to one of Iger's biggest success stories. It was Disney, Disney's $4.4 billion acquisition of Marvel following the 2006 purchase of Pixar Animation Studios that helped transform the company into a juggernaut. The deal brought a trove of popular culture, pop culture figures, including Spider-Man, the X-Men, Iron Man, the Hulk, Captain America, Thor, and the Fantastic Four, among other characters that helped inspire movies, television shows, and video games. The purchase was part of a creative shift in Hollywood, as movie studios became increasingly reliant upon comic book-based stories that appealed to an established fan base. Perlmutter served in the Israeli army during the Six-Day War of 1967, according to Dan Raviv's Comic Wars, Marvel's Battle for Survival. He arrived in New York months later with $250 in his pocket and dreams of making his fortune, his friend and former Marvel board chairman Morton E. Handel told the Times in 2012. He sold toys in Brooklyn and eventually started the Odd Lot Trading, Inco uh, Trading Incorporated, a company that purchased discount soap, beauty products, and toys that it resold at dollar stores. Perlmutter soared the company in the mid-1980s to a drugstore change operator Revco. The turnaround specialist went on to reinvigorate other firms, including Colico Incorporated, the struggling maker of Cabbage Patch dolls, and Remington, the electric shaver firm. With the sales of those companies, Perlmutter generated huge windfalls. He bought Marvel out from bankruptcy in the late 1990s by outmaneuvering legendary financiers, including Carl Icahn. Under Perlmutter, Marvel reinvented itself. Comic books became, in effect, Marvel's research and development arm, developing characters and storylines that could be exploited through film, television, and games. He expanded the business by licensing Marvel characters to movie studios, including Sony Pictures, Paramount Pictures, and 20th Century Fox. Iger, in a 2009 interview with the Los Angeles Times, said that he had been studying the comic book publisher and Marvel movie studio for some time. He said he had admired the way its executives managed the company from a creative and business perspective. In June 2009, Iger and Perlmutter met in Perlmutter's New York office to discuss a possible deal, which was unveiled three months later. Three years later, in 2012, the Times described Perlmutter's management style and his eye for recognizing value in business that others deemed worthless. The executive, whose net worth is estimated at $4 billion by Forbes, also was legendary for his frugality. Former executives say Perlmutter would retrieve paper clips from the trash and tear up old memos to create new notepads. The guy's a whole... This guy's whole life is dedicated to being a success, said former Marvel executive Scott M. Sasa told the Times in 2012. Perlmutter has shown himself especially adept at turning around troubled companies, Sasa noted. He's not Mr. Charming, but once you get to know him, he's a guy I really like a lot, said Sasa. He's super smart, incredibly loyal to people, and highly principled. That was Disney Lays Off Marvel Veteran by Meg James. 
from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, March 30th, 2023. All right, and now we go to an article from uprocks.com, and this is called, What Did Gwyneth Paltrow Whisper in Terry Sanderson's Ear After Winning Her Absurd Ski Accident Trial? By Mike Redman, contributing writer, March 31st, 2023. Gwyneth Paltrow walked away a winner in, from the bizarre yet highly entertaining ski accident trial that had everything from cozy winter looks, random questions about Taylor Swift, and somehow O.J. Simpson weighing in. During the courtroom proceedings in Utah, Paltrow faced off against retired optometrist Terry Sanderson, who sued the Oscar-winning actress for damages after accusing her of colliding into him, then fleeing after allegedly causing him several injuries. Paltrow, however, countersued and accused Sanderson of crashing into her, which a jury believed. She was awarded a symbolic $1 in damages and a reimbursement of legal fees. After the verdict, uh, Paltrow was seen whispering in Sanderson's ear, and we now know what she said. Like a bone broth angel on wings of grace, she had nothing but goodwill for her opponent. Her exact words, I wish you well, Sanderson said, very kind of her. He said he responded, thank you, dear. Despite Paltrow reaching down from her organically glided pedestal to bless the rest of his days, Sanderson was understandably not thrilled with the outcome. He lamented that Paltrow's celebrity status gave her assumed credibility with the jury. Who wants to tag on a celebrity? No wonder I hesitated, right? It's difficult, Sanderson said. Who wants to do that? Someone who learns lines, learns how to play someone else's part and be believable, be credible, wins awards? Who wants to go on that path? As for Paltrow, obviously she's pleased with the outcome and congratulated herself for showing up in court. I felt that acquiescing to a false claim compromising my integrity, Paltrow wrote in an Instagram story via People, I am pleased with the outcome, and I appreciate all of the hard work Judge Holmberg and the jury, and I thank them for their thoughtfulness in handling this case. That was What Did Gwyneth Paltrow Whisper to Ter in Terry Sanderson's Ear After Winning Her Absurd Ski Accident Trial by Mike Redman, contributing writer to Oprox.com, March 31st, 2023. All right, and now let's read some articles from the L.A. Jewish Home your favorite bi-weekly family read for March 16th through the 29th, 2023, Volume 1, Number 11. This is from the Around the Community section. This is called the MX Annual Trustee Dinner. And author is unknown. The Emic Hebrew Academy Teichman Family Torah Center's 62nd Annual Trustee Dinner took place on February 22nd at the beautiful Hollywood Casita in Hollywood. With 180 people in attendance, the room was bedazzled with accents of black and gold, and next-door restaurant provided scrumptious cuisine along with an impeccable presentation. Mr. Brad Schachter of Netfish Music entertained to the guest delight. Special recognition to MX 7th grader Malkiel Schiffman for a solo performance of Lima Anja and A Million Dreams. Our participants also enjoyed a saxophone player throughout the hors d'oeuvres course. Our Master of Ceremonies, Dr. Roy Mansano, entertained the guests with a hilarious rundown on the state of affairs in Los Angeles and politics in general. He then introduced Rabbi Mordecai Schiffman 
MX head of school, who gave a beautiful, insightful Divar Torah and stressed the importance that a community has a school that allows every child within that community the opportunity to receive a Jewish education. She compared the Mishkan for those who support Torah. As long as those who support Torah remain connected to the teachers and institutions that disseminate Torah, our survival is guaranteed. Rabbi Schiffman also mentioned by name those individuals who donated the matching funds that enabled Emek to enjoy its most successful annual campaign to date. Special gifts and awards were presented to Emek's supporters. Mr. Ari Baer, Emek's board president, welcomed everyone to the dinner. He individually thanked his predecessors for their unique contributions to Emek. Mr. Garrett Finder's financial acumen and corporate knowledge had, has ensured that our fiscal compliances and transparencies are longer and healthier than ever before. Mr. Ira Leibowitz's leadership and tenacity enabled Emek to navigate successfully through one of its most turbulent periods and is responsible for hiring our dynamic head of school, Rabbi Mordecai Schiffman, over 11 years ago. Mr. Danny Aronoff's marketing and technological expertise, together with his experience in consumer satisfaction strategies, rebranded the school and catapulted us into the 21st century. Finally, Mr. Bennett Ribibo's warmth and passion for the school enabled Emek to break many ceilings. Ari noted that his role, his role model, whom he has emulated throughout his service to Emek, is Emek's patriarch, Mr. Sol Teichman of blessed memory. Next, Dr. Hillel Newman, Consul General of Israel in Los Angeles, took the podium. He, com he, commended, he commented that he has worked with many Jewish communities while on the job but he has a special relationship with our community because of the acceptance and warmth that Emek, the Emek family has for every Jew. He also expressed his thanks for our partnership in support of the State of Israel. The evening concluded with a delectable dessert reception. To our guest's delight, chocolate mousse and fruit farfaits lined the de dessert tables, and they were also treated to a unique scotch and cigar presentation on the outdoor patio. Tremendous gratitude goes to Mrs. Sandra Rabibo for producing such special, such a spectacular event, and to all our trustees whose whose presence and involvement make the made the evening so magical. That was Emmett's annual trustee dinner, author unknown, also from the around community section. This is called the Three Mitzvot of Purim at Spivak, author unknown. Students at Spivak Hebrew Academy collected Purim by experiencing all of the three mitzvot of Purim, Megillah, Mishlok, Manot, slash Matanam, Le'evionim, and Mishteh. The students started their Purim week of festivities with a special gathering to view a real Megillah and hear portions of the Megillah read by Rabbi Gabriel Elias, head of school. The early childhood students watched Rabbi Elias and Cicely Weisenfield, director of the school, unraveling the Megillah to show the way uh, the, Me the Megillah scroll is rolled out. Next, the students prepared Mishlok Manot food, ba uh, food baskets to exchange with each other throughout the day. Each student prepared an additional Mishlok Manot to sell. All proceeds from the sale will go on to a donation for Matanot La Evionim money for the poor to fulfill the mitzvah of the Purim Suda meal. 
the fifth grade students sold all of the Mishluk Menot and made a profit of over $100, which was donated to Tonghe Shabbos on Purim Day. The students then enjoyed a very silly and fun Shushan Purim dress-up day. Students came to school in costume and enjoyed various Purim activities, including Purim Jeopardy, Puppy Petting Zoo, and Reptile Shows. Students enjoyed a Purim play performance by the 3rd and 4th grades. Additionally, all of the elementary students gathered together to have a Mishtech, a mishtech feast lunch, followed by a group of Berkat Hamazon and a very exciting teacher costume contest. The Spivak Hebrew Academy students enjoyed experiencing and fulfilling all the Purim mitzvot. That was the three mitzvot of Purim at Spivak, author unknown, from the Around the Community section. All right, and also from the Around the Community section, this one is called Shalhevet Lady Firehawks Win Championship Game, author unknown. It was a whirlwind 72 hours for the Shalhevet girls varsity basketball team. After celebrating Purim with the school-wide Megillah reading and Purim party and a day of delivering Mishalok Manot, the Lady Firehawks took the court in front of a rabid, costume-wearing home crowd. This was no ordinary game. It was the semi-final playoff game against local powerhouse Campbell Hall with a trip to the state championship in Sacramento on the line. This would not be their first trip to the finals as the team made it to the state championship in Sacramento last year, the first Jewish school to accomplish that feat in California. Unfortunately, last year, the Shalavet girls team fell short of their ultimate goal of winning the championship but dedicated themselves to getting back to the championship with a shot at redemption. With cheers of Al-Hanissim and Mishkenias Adar from the fans in attendance, the Lady Firehawks won a physical, hard-fought game. Led by senior guard Talia Tibby's Eurostep, Ariel Grossman's dead-eye shooting, and Yali Schwartz's all-around play, the Firehawks maintained a small league the entire game before pulling away at the end with a double-digit win. With anti-Semitism feeling more present than ever in the, in the lives of our communities, <clears throat> it is more important than ever that we find ways of educating those around us to understand that Jews aren't some sort of caricature based on the stereotypes and canards peddled by anti-Semites. The knowledge that Shalavet's girls' basketball team and energetic fan base are the only outward observant Jews that many of their opponents for meet gives the interactions on the court an added layer of pressure and Jewish pride. Just 24 hours after celebrating at a Shushan Purim talent show, Firehawk Nation uh, made their way to Sacramento for a pre-Shabbat championship game. Bleary-eyed fans, students, parents, and other supporters boarded 6 a.m. flights from LAX, ready to cheer on their beloved Lady Firehawks. The game was a rematch of last year's championship game and a chance for redemption. The Firehawks are fortunate to have an incredible coaching staff led by Jewish Hoops America Perennial Coach of the Year and two-time winner, Coach of the Year candidate and two-time winner, Ryan Coleman. Coach Coleman always had his teams prepared to take on the Goliaths of high school basketball. Under his leadership, Shalhevet, a school of 250 boys and girls, has become the national Jewish basketball powerhouse and a force to be reckoned with in the local California basketball scene, regularly beating schools with enrollments upward of 2,000 students. The final did not disappoint. 
a hard-fought battle that ended with the Firehawks winning 50-46. The Chalavet girls jumped out to an early lead, shooting 53% up from the field in the first half, including 3 of 5 from long distance. The San Domenico Panthers kept it close with physical defense and many offensive rebounds. Fans from both teams were raucous and supportive throughout. The young women who played were truly remarkable and left it all on the floor, giving everything they had. It's quite clear that the Firehawks and their fan base made a true Kedush Hashem through their actions on and off the court. At the press conference after the game, junior sharpshooter Ariel Grossman was quoted as saying, We know we are playing for uh, much more than Shalavet. We are playing for the entire Jewish community. That was Shalavet Lady Firehawks win championship game, author unknown from the Around the Community section. Also from the Around the Community section, this is called Speed Dating Event a Success, author unknown. There are many types of matches, Shidohim friendships, business partners, and even matchmakers. Adina Halberstam and Aviva Huss, two longtime volunteer matchmakers on opposite ends of Los Angeles, recently collaborated on an idea for a singles event. Adina is a matchmaker on Saw You at Sinai and Adopt Shadhan, and Aviva is a matchmaker on You Connects. After recognizing their shared energy and the vision for an event, the two women got to work. They decided on a speed dating event catering to modern Orthodox Jewish singles, both Ashkenazi and Sephardic, between the ages of 25 and 35. First, they publicized the event through various platforms. The response was overwhelming. The event reached capacity very quickly. Adina and Aviva sought out sponsors to keep the cost low and make the event extra special. They also screened all uh, potential participants to ensure that they met the necessary demographic criteria. They even bridged the gap and helped singles from the valley to the cities meet in person. The two women finalized the logistics and finishing touches. However, the forecast of significant rain had the duo scrambling for a last-minute indoor venue. They reached out to Michael Bernstein of the Cask, who graciously shared his chic venue. He generously provided all drinks for the event as well. Despite the weather, the singles all arrived. They had some time for some delicious food, drinks, and mingling with live music. Then it was game time. Participants met a new person and rotated every three minutes. Adina and Aviva were busy getting the crowd moving and getting to know the singles. The energy in the room was tangible, and many great conversations took place. After the speed dating portion of the evening ended, there was more opportunity for mingling and dessert, which lasted, clo lasted until close to midnight. Before leaving, each single, before leaving, each single was asked to fill out a survey of who they would be interested in meeting again. Adina and Aviva spent the next day following up with attendees. Adina and Aviva were thrilled that, that were many mutually approved matches. These singles are now connecting again as a result of this event. The success of their first event inspired Adina and Aviva to plan another event for singles after Pesach. They feel blessed to have had the opportunity to create meaningful connections within their communities and look forward to more events in the future. Stay tuned. These matchmaking events can be reached at Adina Halberstam, matches by Adina at gmail.com, and Aviva Huss, Aviva Connects 18 at gmail.com. That was Speed Dating Event A Success, author unknown. This next one is called Creative Children's Megillah Leaning at Link, 
author unknown. On Tanise Esther, a few hours before the start of Purim, the children received a fun-filled preview of the Megillah at Link. Dozens of young children were altern alternately mesmerized, dazzled, and humored by the noted educator Rabbi Aaron McHale. He encapsulated the various details in the Purim drama with a unique slideshow pre presentation. He also gave up prizes for those who could answer his questions and added lots of humor to his unconventional rendition of the Megillah. And of course, there were plenty of opportunities to make noise for Haman. There was Creative Children's Megillah Leaning at Link, author unknown. And this other one is called Remarkable Siam Celebrated at the Link Kolel, author unknown. On Sunday evening, February 26, 23 men celebrated the completion of Seder Moed in Gemara at the Link Kolel. Dozens of their family members and friends attended the gala banquet that the Kolel tended for this special occasion. The genesis of the Siam was a clarion call issued by Rabbi Moshe Bruel, the assistant rab of the Link Shul, in the midst of the fervent dancing on Simchas Torah. He challenged everyone to demonstrate the true love of Nimud HaTorah by committing to finishing the twelve Masektos of Seder Moed in a short time frame. Among the 23 intrepid volunteers were Link Avarahim, veteran B'nai Torah, who learned the, uh, and davened at Link, and relatively new Beli Teshuvah, who had never finished a Perik in Shas, let alone an entire Ma Masekta. Learning individually and Behavrusa, they finished the entire Seder Moed. Some, like Rabbi Dr. Daniel Agress, one of the speakers at this Siam, finished a difficult Masekta, such as Eruvin by himself. Others learned Behavrusa, a small parak in Tractate Shabbos. All were determined not to let the momentum of Simcha's Torah ebb away. Rabbi Asher Brander, dean and founder of Link, gave the keynote address at the Siam. He emphasized how momentous this was for the development of the Kolel community and why it was so necessary to make such an exquisite banquet show to show proper Kavod HaTorah. His words were echoed by Rabbi Bruhl, who was the driving force behind the learning and the beautiful ambience of the Siam. All the men thanked their wives and children for allowing them to take the extra time to complete their limudum. The evening ended with stirring live music and spirited dancing. Many of the participants looked forward to the next project of Limud HaTorah to be organized by the Kolel. That was a remarkable siyum celebrated at the Link Kolel, author unknown, from the Around the Community section. Right, now here is something from the L.A. Jewish Kids section, and this is called Rebbe's Stories, Go Complain to the One Who Made Me, by Rabbi Mordecai Dubin. When Elazar, son of Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, was a student in the yeshiva, he spent all of his time learning Torah. After many years of hard work, he became a rabbi and had a great Talmud haham. At the time, there was a town searching for a new shul rabbi, and Rabbi Elazar was chosen for this very honorable position. When the time came for Rabbi Elazar to travel to the town, he gathered his belongings and began his journey, and along the way he was thinking about all the honor that he would receive when he would arrive at his new position. He imagined that all the people would gather on the streets, 
the children would be waving flags, and the band would be playing festive music as they welcomed their new rabbi. He was also thinking about all his great achievements and how he was chosen above all the other great Tamidei Hachamim for this honorable position. Suddenly, his thoughts were interrupted by a greeting. Shalom Aleichem Rebbe, the voice called out, but the greeting did not sound respectful. It sounded as if someone was making fun of him. Rabbi Elazar turned to the man and saw that he was sticking out his tongue at Rabbi Elazar. Rabbi Elazar said to the man, You are so ugly. <clears throat> is it everyone is everyone in your town as ugly as you? The man looked terribly embarrassed and said to Rabbi Elazar, If you don't like the way I look, then complain to the one who made me. Rabbi Elazar realized that the man was not speaking disrespectfully, nor was he making a disrespectful face. This was how the man actually looked and as a result of his misshapen face, his speech was also affected. Rabbi Elazar jumped down from his wagon and begged the man's forgiveness. But the man would not forgive him. I will not forgive you until you go to the one who made me and complain to him about the ugly man that he created. Rabbi Elazar continued to ask the man's forgiveness until they reached the town. Everyone was waiting excitedly for their new rabbi. The children were waving their flags and the music played joyfully. And all the people were shouting, Welcome our new rabbi. Welcome our great teacher. The man who had been embarrassed by Rabbi Elazar turned to the crowd and asked, Who is the great rabbi and teacher that you are shouting about? The people responded, It is the great rabbi that is standing behind you. The man replied, If you call this man a great rabbi, then I hope there will never be another rabbi like him. Why do you say this? The people asked. The man told them everything that Rabbi Elazar had said to him. The people of the town asked the man to please forgive Rabbi Elazar. The man told the people that he would only forgive him on the condition that he will never behave like this again. From then, from that day on, Rabbi Elazar tried his best to treat everyone in a loving and acceptable manner. That was Go Complain to the One Who Made Me by Rabbi Mordecai Dubin. Uh, from the Jewish LA Jewish Kids section, Rabbi's Stories. The story is taken from Meseches Tanit 20a. Now here's something from the Shalom Bayit Thought Through Through the Parsha section. Parsha Vayakel is jewelry vanity by Rabbi Nir Yaakovi. Your wife points to her ring and says, Wouldn't it be nice to have matching earrings? You wonder, isn't grace deceitful? and beauty vain? You are not the first one to ask. After the women donated their copper mirrors for the construction of the tabernacle, God related to Moses that these are the most favorite of all materials donated. Confused, Moses asked, How is an instrument that is used to celebrate vanity even permitted, let alone become God's favorite? God answered in that while women can use mirrors to pander to vanity, in the case of these women, they used the mirrors to endear themselves to their husbands. Your wife needs to feel attractive, and the Torah clearly states that you do that by buying her clothes and jewelry. You're lucky your wife voiced a specific desire. Be grateful for it. She saved you time hunting for a gift. Buy her nice earrings within budget for Shalom Bayit. That was Parshat Vayakel is Jewelry Vanity by Rabbi Nir Yaakobi from the Shalom Bayat through the Parsha section. Rabbi Nir and his wife Atrian give regular classes on Shalom Bayat, B 
B-A-Y-I-T. His popular three-minute podcast is funny and draws Shalom Bayit ideas from the Torah portion of the week. To register, it's shalomincomics at gmail.com. This is called, this next one is from the Torah Thoughts section, Parsha Pekude by Rabbi Beryl Wine. The basic lesson in this week's Torah reading is accountability. God demands from Moshe that the others who formulated and created the tabernacle in the desert to account for all the material that was donated by the Jewish people for that purpose. The last piece of silver that was donated had to be accounted for, but Moshe was distressed that he could not account for a thousand measures of the silver. He finally remembered that this donation of silver was used for constructing hooks that uh, bound the tapestries of the tabernacle together. The hooks must shout to remind us of their presence and to make Moshe's accounting complete and accurate. Accounting is a very painstaking project. Most people view it as a bordering on, on boring. Nevertheless, there is no commercial enterprise that can successfully exist without good and accurate accounting practices. The financial accounting in our parsha regarding the materials that were used in the construction of the tabernacle is a template for proper human behavior concerning the use of resources in all areas of life. This is especially true in matters that border on religious institutions that are held to the highest of all standards and are to be above any suspicion of corruption. The priest of the temple wore garments that had no pockets and could not conceal any hidden items of value that might be removed from the temple. This overriding meticulous standard and value of accountability is not limited to financial matters. Judaism teaches us that we are all accountable for our actions, behaviors, speech, attitudes, and even thoughts. We were created as being responsible creatures, responsible to the Creator and to the other creatures that exist with us on this planet. We are given that uh, we are given talents that are unique to each one of us. The challenge that is put before us is how those talents and abilities can be used for good and noble causes. There are many who think that the gifts that they have been given are for their exclusive use and that there is no need or obligation to share them with others. They are sadly mistaken in this view. People are accountable for what they have as they were for the supposedly insignificant amounts of silver that was used to construct hooks and kept the tapestries together. King Solomon states in Coalette that one should realize that all actions and behavior will eventually be weighed on the scales of heavenly justice. We live in a time when accountability, to a great extent, has been replaced by excuses, social engineering, economic and psychological theories. All of these are used only to avoid the issue of accountability. To be human is to be responsible, and that is the message not only of this week's Parsha, but of everything in Judaism. Shabbat Shalom. That was Parsha Pekude by Rabbi Beryl Wine from the Torah Thought section. At this next one is called Yoli's Tish, Getting Stuck on Purim Vibes by Yoel Halpern. Wow, what a Purim! I did things a bit differently this Purim. For starters, I fully embraced the idea of getting dressed up for the Megillah reading with my kids. To be honest, I'm a bit self-conscious when in costume, but I wanted my kids to see me live Purim. We first went to the to YICC and enjoyed the great vibes and an awesome Purim carnival. We heard Megillah at Adas Torah and had some much-needed food 
while the kids were entertained by all the wonderful programming going on. I started, of course, feeling really self-conscious in my costume. I took a moment to tell myself the following message. It's okay to feel self-conscious. You are wearing a Thank You Hashem jumpsuit, a bekish, a curly wig, and a matsayamaka. I stopped asking myself why I was self-conscious and surrendered to the discomfort of the feeling. I accepted that in certain situations I will feel subconscious and just like that the feeling disappeared once accepted. After getting the kids to sleep, I went to a chilled perm farbregen. Every year I feel like I am chasing a feeling. I go from one place to another looking for the proper perm vibe that reminds me of my childhood perms in Far Rockaway. This year, a bunch of us decided we were just going to sit around a table with some colant poppers and drinks. No musicians no, or DJs, just our own sweet voices a cappella style. Almost everybody shared Devere Torah or a story. For the first time in a long time, I had no feelings of FOMO. It felt like we were doing the Avodah of Purim as they did in the shtetl. The next morning, I had an awesome Shaharas. Before Purim, I really asked Hashem to help me connect and feel present. Hashem replied, so to speak, give me a shaharas and I'll give you the world. 1010 wins reference uh, for all the New Yorkers. Coming out of shul, I felt the day in my bones. One of my gripes with being an adult on Purim is the shalak manos run. In the past, we planned two weeks in advance. We had spreadsheets and data tables which we fed in route efficiency of software, uh, fed into in, into route software, into route efficiency software, which in real time laid our Sherlock Manos route. We had a team in place if we were running late to come and pick us pick up the slack. Picture lots of logistics. This year, before we left the house, I made a lahayim or two. We pumped up the music and drove off. Of course, my wife was the one driving. We headed in, into the hood and just started visiting people. I made a point to go in with my kids and not just have them deliver for us. Also, I wanted to make it lahayim everywhere I went. So, so I was feeling good and the whole run was really pleasurable. Zero for, uh, pressure. We got home with time to spare for the su suda and I was able to say some tehillim. I am not a big tehillim zugar sayer, but it hit the spot in a big way. Big thank you to Dovid Hamalek for putting all of that together. The Siuda was mamash in the clouds. I was zohi to dine with Rabbi Rose and Rabbi Ben Sozan. The energy starting out was low, and some of us were working to get back to the state of Ad Delo Yada. Every 15 minutes or so, there was a noticeable increase in energy. By the end of the night, we were in the clouds. Such a mix of people and backgrounds were present, and I feel like we gave Hashem Nahas. I didn't want to suffer PPD, postpartum depression, which is the feeling of heaviness coming down from all the Simcha. I also had another Farbrengen after the Suda just to close out the day and ensure a smooth landing back to reality. My bracha on Purim is that we should be stuck with the feeling of Purim all year. We are stuck on so many things in life, why can't we get stuck on Purim? I was getting stuck on Purim vibes by Yoel Halpern from the Yoeli's Tish section.
Yoel Halperm is a businessman, publisher of the LA Jewish Home, and a true Hasid at heart. Originally from far Rockaway, New York, Yoel has always yearned to bring some of his fondest childhood memories back to life in the Los Angeles community. With that in mind, Yoel, along with many friends and local rabbis, started the LA Mishmar, a movement of growth and vulnerability sweeping through LA. Yoel lives with his wife and three children in LA. All right, let's start closing it out with uh, some ads. But uh, one of the first ads I want to read is actually an advertisement from the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, March 26, 2023, from the World Jewish Congress, an open letter to President Biden. Dear President Biden, Today, America is witnessing the most frightening increase in anti-Semitism since the end of World War II. Jews make up just 2% of the U.S. population, but are the target of more than half of all religious hate crimes. Jews have been murdered, beaten, and spat upon, especially Orthodox Jews, with almost complete silence from political leaders and the media. It is now common not just for major celebrities and athletes to utter the most outrageous anti-Jewish slurs, but even members of Congress. Even worse, vile lies have now filtered down into mainstream culture, especially among young people. Jewish students have been singled out on college campuses because they have Jewish names or because they defend Israel's right to exist. Jewish enrollment at elite schools has plummeted. Jewish students are excluded from, from clubs and denied positions. This is not Germany in 1938. This is the United States in 2023. Mr. President, only you can stop this rising tide of hatred against the Jewish people. You must use your office to address the nation and the world directly and say in the strongest language that hatred against Jews is dangerous for all people and it is un-American. Seven years ago, I personally presented you with the Theodore Herzl Award, the highest honor of the World Jewish Congress. You have always been a friend to the Jewish people, and I believe you remain so. But to stop this rising danger, I call on you to, one, in a major high-profile address, tell the American people that anti-Semitism is no different than racism. Hate crime against Jews will not be tolerated by the U.S. government and will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Two, the goal of the BDS movement is the end of the Jewish state of Israel. Any person promoting BDS, including the extreme progressive members of your own party, should be called out. These people don't represent your values, the values of the Democratic Party, or our country's values. 3. In 2019, the executive order combating anti-Semitism reinforced Title VI protection for Jewish Americans. Educational institutions that allow discrimination against Jews are supposed to lose federal funding. As you develop your strategy on anti-Semitism, please order your Department of Education to thoroughly investigate widespread complaints of anti-Semitic discrimination and your Justice Department to expeditiously pursue the causes that arise from an institution's failure to comply. This is not just a Democratic or Republican issue. It does not come only from the left or from the right. And it is not just a problem coming from non-Jews. I have watched too many Jewish organizations and their leaders stay silent in the face of growing danger. In 1938, Jewish Americans were also silent, afraid that they would make matters worse for themselves by speaking out. We all know what happened. I had hoped that those days were long past, which is why I am writing this letter today. I will not be silent when Jews face hatred in America. Mr. President, when you first went into politics in Delaware so many years ago, 
a man named Harry Zutz was one of the first to spot your potential and support you. I am told that you promised Mrs. Zutz that you would always protect the Jewish people. Given what we see happening all around us, I believe this is precisely the time for you to keep that promise. Sincerely, Ronald S. Lauder, President of the World Jewish Congress. So that is an advertisement from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, March 26, 2023, an open letter to President Biden from the World Jewish Congress. Publication of this message was paid for in full by Ronald S. Lauder. Uh, website is www.worldjewishcongress.org. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom, and of course, as always, peace.